Happy one year anniversary to the Aff Out podcast. One year ago, I took a chance and I posted my first episode on The Donner Party, a classic, right? And one year and 27 episodes later, here we are. It's been really, really fun to build this podcast and watch it grow, and I look forward to so much more cannibalism, exploration, adventures gone wrong, and gore in the future. Thank you so much for being a part of this journey, and cheers to another year. Welcome to A Popular History of Unpopular Things, a mostly scripted podcast that makes history more fun and accessible. My kind of history is the unpopular stuff. Disease, death, and destruction. I like learning about all things bloody, gross, mysterious, and weird. Okay, so today's episode is going to be fun. This episode was a request from one of my cannibal patrons over on the AFOUT Patreon, Nil Humphreys. So thank you, Nil. This one is for you. If you want to request an episode, or if you have a topic you know would be perfect for my show, then join my Patreon as a cannibal. Only my cannibals get exclusive privileges by requesting topics or joining my drop day live stream. On November 19th, 1944, 36 men volunteered for an experiment at the University of Minnesota to test the effects of starvation, which was a growing concern after many incidents of extreme hunger during World War II. It was an almost 12-month study, during which these men's daily normal caloric intake was reduced. The first 12 weeks was what we call the control period, where the men were given a battery of tests to get some baseline data. And after that, it was 24 weeks of what they considered starvation. Their calorie requirements for maintaining weight essentially was cut in half. And during this period of time, the scientists studied not only the physical effects, but also the mental effects of starvation. After enduring a long 24 weeks, the final stage was 12 weeks of rehabilitation. The men were given more food, and the scientists studied how well they recovered. And though the men had to endure great difficulties, none of them died during this experiment. The idea was to get information about how to rehab a starving population. What combination of calories and proteins and vitamins were needed to bring people back from the brink of death? Killing these men off, or torturing them to the point of death, was kinda not the point of the experiment. Today, the idea of experimenting on humans like that just wouldn't fly, right? But back in 1944-1945, which was also the tail end of World War II, these men volunteered to do this. So, before we get into the horrors of the starvation experiment, and AFOUT fans already know what's coming, let's first go over the historical context. For those of you who are new to the show, historical context is always the first thing I go over. We need to know what was happening in the world in this period of time that led to the starvation experiment. Why did this even happen, right? Understanding the historical context will give us the answer to those questions. So World War II was... well, it was a lot of things. It was a war between good and evil. It was a power struggle between different political ideologies. It led to the deaths of upward of 70-plus million people, possibly more, which includes military deaths, civilian deaths, and deaths from illness, disease, and famine. But it's that last part that I want to focus on for this episode. Famine. 
Let's talk about Leningrad, which is today's St. Petersburg in Russia. So German troops sieged Leningrad from September 1941 until January 1944, a prolonged blockade of 872 days. Hitler's plan? Starve the city. If Leningrad's population couldn't get out of the city and they couldn't get supplies in, then in time they would starve and Germany would be victorious. Now, to be fair, Leningrad did have access to a small pipeline of supplies coming through Lake Ladoga, which is to the northeast of the city, but it wasn't enough to supply the entire city. The starvation in Leningrad was so severe that over the exceptionally cold winter of 1941 to 1942, cold even for Russian standards, as many as 100,000 people starved per month. Their tiny rations weren't enough to keep them fed, so they turned to alternative sources. Apparently, potato was used to help create wallpaper paste, right? So they peeled their walls and boiled the glue for sustenance. They started boiling leather, too, right? Turning it into a gummy, chewy thing that wasn't nutritious, but it did the job. Leningrad was also home to a zoo, so you can imagine those zoo animals disappeared pretty quickly. And shortly after that, it was household pets. But when the food rations were gone, when all of the animals were eaten, and when all the alternatives, like potato wall paste, were used up, I bet you know what happened next. And if you're an AFOUT fan, you definitely know what happened next. They ate each other. First, it was what I would consider to be your typical survival cannibalism. Dead bodies, which were preserved in the snows, the cold winters around Russia, were eaten up. Survivors recount some pretty horrific tales. One, Daniel Granin, recounts that, quote, A child died. He was just three years old. His mother laid the body inside the double-glazed window and sliced off a piece of him every day to feed her second child, a daughter. End quote. But soon, the living started to disappear. The elderly and the children were the easiest targets. But as Todd Tucker writes in his book, The Great Starvation Experiment, quote, the children of Leningrad began disappearing. As rumors of cannibalism spread, it became illegal to sell any form of ground meat in the city as the sources became too horrifically questionable. In one case, the bones of several dozen children were found inside the apartment of a concert violinist. Even his own five-year-old son was missing. By the beginning of 1944, as even corpses and children became scarce, there were reports of people cutting off their own body parts and eating them in an attempt to stave off hunger. End quote. You, you get the point, right? Starvation, especially prolonged starvation, like what we saw with the German blockade of Leningrad, can turn what was probably a normal, rational, sane population into one that turns to cannibalism for survival. Sources suggest that there were around 2,000 prosecuted cases of cannibalism in Leningrad. They didn't just let it happen, they tried to prosecute to prevent it from continuing. But it wasn't just Leningrad. Starvation, I'm not talking cannibalism, <laughs> I'm talking starvation in general, was a tool that the Nazis used against their imprisoned victims in the concentration camps. And, and over in China, the civil war between the nationalists and the communists also saw widespread hunger and starvation, something that would continue throughout Mao's Great Leap Forward, which was a disastrous attempt at industrializing China. It led to a great famine, and it claimed the lives of anywhere between 15 and 55 million people. 
And we can even look at events in Europe before World War II to see mass starvation events. The Holodomor, for example, which is the Ukrainian famine of 1932-1933, was Stalin's attempt at collectivizing farmlands for the Soviet state, also an attempt to take away Ukrainian land. Modern estimates range anywhere from 3 to 5 million people died from starvation as a result of these Soviet policies. So how does all of that connect to the University of Minnesota, which is so far away from the starvations and famines that I just mentioned in Europe and Asia? Well, it was a mixture of politics and humanitarianism. But let's be honest, mostly politics. Stay with us. We'll be right back. A Little Bit de Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit de Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Those of you out there who are history people may know that after World War II ended, our Russian allies became our enemies because of the stark contrast between the Western, democratic, capitalist way of life versus the Eastern, communist way of life. You know, the beginnings of the Cold War. The man who led this starvation experiment, Dr. Ansel Keys, argued that a famished Europe would be sufficiently weakened weakened enough for communist or fascist ideology to take root. After all, it was an economically ruined Germany that saw the rise of the Nazi party, right? Keyes believed that understanding hunger and its psychological and physical consequences could help prevent the spread of communism, which would therefore be a victory for democracy. And I guess it would also be good to, you know, solve world hunger, or at least understand how hunger changes a man. But that would be an issue Keyes would explore through his experiment. It was the political angle that got him the funding. Ansel Keyes' pitch worked, and he got the funding for the Minnesota Starvation Experiment. Now that Dr. Keyes had created this starvation experiment, he would need volunteers. And I do mean volunteers. These men chose to go through with this, and they weren't paid. They are unpaid volunteers. So who are these men that would volunteer to starve themselves? Well, they were men who came from the Civilian Public Service, or the CPS, a group of men who conscientiously objected to military service. COs, we call them. Conscientious objectors. And when it was clear that the U.S. was going to enter the war, men were called in when their draft cards were pulled, right? And if they could convince the draft board that their objection to war on moral grounds or for religious reasons was legitimate, they would instead be put into the CPS. It was an alternative way of serving. There were a lot of jobs that men in the CPS could have. Again, that's the civilian public service, and the starvation experiment was one of them, towards the end of the war at least. It probably helped that the ads for the program had the pretty convincing message of, will you starve so that they be better fed? It was a good way of appealing to the morality of these COs, those that truly believed in pacifism but still wanted to support their country. They were attracted to the idea that they could do something meaningful without betraying their core values. They weren't trying to get out of war. They were just pacifists. So when Dr. Key sent out the ad for volunteers, more than 200 men responded with interest. And again, this was a whole year, almost, of volunteering for free, to starve and be constantly monitored while you're doing it. 
That may seem like a really foreign concept in 2023 when I'm recording this episode, but consider the context. This was a chance for men who were fundamentally opposed to war to do something meaningful with their time in the CPS, something they had to do as an alternative to going to war. And a lot of people, men and women, were very much into supporting the war effort however they could. But Dr. Keyes didn't need 200 test subjects, so how did he whittle down the list? Well, first, he wanted men with already good health. Having underlying medical conditions could potentially skew the results of his test. This went for mental health, too. A new tool had been released the year prior to assess mental health. It's called the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the MMPI. It was a pretty rudimentary check on mental health, but it allowed Dr. Keyes to filter out men that he believed were suffering from mental illness or at least had the potential to break. He also didn't want married men. Um, He wanted his test subjects to be completely focused on the experiment and his rules, so he typically looked for younger males or at least unmarried ones. And I keep saying men, by the way, because it was only men in this test, in case that wasn't assumed by this point. Dr. Keyes also wanted volunteers who could get along with others in difficult situations. This was a bit harder to test for, I suppose, so he relied heavily on various directors and other CPS programs. So let's say you were transferring to Dr. Keyes' experiment from, I don't know, a burn ward in Vermont, right? Keyes would call up your director at the burn ward in Vermont at that particular CPS program and ask about you. If you were short-tempered or had otherwise unfavorable attitude toward other people, you'd be out. And lastly, Keyes wanted men who wanted to be there, ones who felt compelled to help and had a genuine interest in service. So after weeding through the 200 applicants, using his criteria, Keyes selected 40 men for a final screening, and of that 40, 36 were invited to officially join the experiment. On average, these men were 25 and a half years old. Youngest was 20, oldest was 33. The average weight was 152.7. The lightest was 136.4, heaviest 183.9. The overall height for these men was 5 feet 6 inches tall, though some of them were over 6 foot. And they were also educated men. All of them had at least one year of college under their belt, and 18 of them had college degrees. So each of the 36 men were told of the potential dangers of the experiment, though I can imagine the risks were severely downplayed. They were also all screened for tuberculosis ahead of time, since tuberculosis was commonly linked with famine and starvation, and it wouldn't be good if any of the men already had signs of it before starving themselves half to death, right? I mean, we're not trying to kill these guys. So they screened them for TB, but none of them had it. Oh, and if any of you are wondering at that point, if all of this was normal, right? If it's normal to experiment on humans like this? Kinda? Now, this would change after the horrors of Nazi doctor Joseph Mengele came to light, right? But American doctors did lead trials and experiments on humans. For example, Dr. Walter Reed traveled to Cuba, I think this was in the 1930s, to test whether or not mosquitoes transmitted yellow fever. Some men were exposed to mosquitoes, and others were told to sleep on the bedding of the infected men to see if it was bacterial or viral and could spread through infected clothes, right? The answer was mosquitoes, by the way. Yellow fever is transmitted through mosquitoes. Dr. Mengele, though, did some really disturbing stuff. He favored identical twins, so he could infect or operate on one twin and leave the other as a control, which means do nothing to them to see what the changes are, right? 
and after the one he experimented on died, he would usually kill the other to see how their internal organs compared. This guy was the absolute worst, if you haven't already heard of him. And while I'm on the subject, even after the Nuremberg trials, which exposed the horrors that the Nazi doctors perpetrated on their victims, among other things, the U.S. still continued to human experimentation. But that's a story for another day. And although Dr. Keyes' experiment took place after World War II and after Mengele's horrible research, like I said, the horrors, the extent of the horrors at least, weren't fully known yet. So it wasn't completely outlandish at the time for human trials and experimentation. As the test subjects arrived at the University of Minnesota, they found their new living quarters at the football stadium, and that's American football for my non-U.S. listeners. The season had ended by that point, so the entire place was virtually empty, and each volunteer got his own cot. There were also more than enough rooms to study the men individually and privately, so Dr. Keyes felt pretty fortunate about the location. And here's what he has said as he addressed the group of volunteers. Quote, Good morning. We are here because of the problem of relief feeding in general, and particularly in the war-devastated areas today. Accurate scientific data on the effects of starvation is almost completely lacking, and until it can be supplied, no really efficient program of relief can be planned or operated. At what levels of feeding calories, proteins, and vitamins is rehabilitation most rapid and most efficient? How long can we expect famine victims to be reduced in work capacity? What are the particular areas of human function most affected? The answers to these, and a host of more detailed technical questions, must be provided if the most effective use is to be made of any resources for relief, no matter how small or how large. Direct observations of famine victims in the field do not supply the answers because the necessary information on their pre-famine status is lacking, and because field conditions are unsuitable for the collection of sufficiently exact information. It is fortunate that it was possible to establish this controlled project, if not to yield all of the answers, at least to greatly reduce the area of our ignorance on the questions of vital human interest. Human misery and want are qualities of life which properly bring an emotional response, but starvation is quantitative and must be met with quantitative answers. The service committees, the medical foundations, the University of Minnesota, and not least you, the volunteer subjects, have joined in a common effort to supply basic knowledge on how to achieve the highest food relief with fixed and obviously inadequate food resources. If our results allow an increase in efficiency of relief feeding by as little as 5%, we shall be able to reduce the sum of starvation suffering by an amount incalculably greater than would be possible with the same effort and expenditure on direct relief. And this gain is not limited to this year. It would extend to all time and all future food crises. End quote. Wow. I mean, these guys already volunteered to be here as a way to help their country and prevent starvation, so they didn't need convincing. But I can imagine that they ate up everything Dr. Keyes said and probably felt really patriotic, with potentially saving lives through their suffering. Keyes was appealing to their altruism, and it worked really, really well. The men were then measured. Weights? Heights? Heart size? Blood volume? Hearing? Vision? Sperm count? fat percentage, you name it. Keyes was interested in how fat would deplete itself as the body was induced to starvation levels. 
The average among all 36 men, by the way, was 14% body fat. So not really that much to begin with. Basically, if it could be measured, Keyes measured it, right? So for the next 12 weeks, the men were in the first phase of the experiment, the control period. The goal was to figure out how much each man needed to eat to maintain his weight and all the other measured things. Essentially, how much food to break even. Their meals were measured and controlled. And since they were also sleeping at the facility in barracks, they were closely monitored. Men who snuck food or otherwise messed up the experiment would be removed. It was a scientific experiment about hunger, after all. Dr. Keyes wanted to make sure all variables were planned or controlled as much as they could be, because the results would be skewed if participants were sneaking food, right? So the meals during these first few weeks were, well, more than I eat now, actually. (laughs) Each man ate an average of 3,200 calories a day over three meals, which is more than they probably ate normally. At least that's what a lot of them said. To help pass the time, the men were also given jobs to do. This could be laundry or general maintenance work. Some would do clerical work with, with the lab if they had any scientific experiment, uh, experience. Sorry, Nothing too strenuous to skew the data, but something to keep their minds occupied. They were also given an education, despite the fact they were all relatively educated anyway. They took classes in language and sociology and political science. But something that was a constant through the whole 12-month period, including the six-month starvation phase, was a a 22-mile-a-week walking requirement. That's a little more than three miles a day. And after a while, the men were scheduled to take a test in the lab called the Harvard Fitness Test. Essentially, they would have to run on a treadmill until they collapsed. They would do this twice during the control phase so that Keys could get accurate baseline data, and then they would do it later during the starvation phase to see how their bodies fared. Here's how the scientist described it to one of the subjects, Max Campbellman. You're going to walk for 20 minutes at first, at 3.5 miles per hour, at a 10% grade, and after that we're going to reduce the grade slightly to 8.6% and double the speed to 7 miles per hour for 5 minutes or until you can't run anymore. Dr. Keyes jumped in adding that the test was designed to push the men to their limits, something Keyes was interested in learning as he argued it would be the same thing with the starvation experiment. He wanted to know how far these men could push themselves so when they were asked to work when they were starving, he would trust that the men were giving it their all. You know, for science or whatever. Oh, and for those of you wondering... When it got to the 7 mile per hour running speed, Max Campbellman pushed himself until he developed a cramp in his side, lost his footing, smashed his chin on the handrails, and bit his tongue when he hit the bottom of the treadmill. He only lasted 3 minutes and 20 seconds. The three-month control phase ended on February 11, 1945, and at this point, despite the anticipatory stress and in some cases physical pain of the Harvard fitness test, the men were feeling pretty good. The biggest complaint, shared by almost half of the men, was that they felt tired. But they were ready as they could be for the next stage, the difficult and dangerous stage, starvation. February 12, 1945. Things changed abruptly for the men. Instead of three ample meals a day, they were given two meals a day that averaged 1,570 calories, which is still more than I eat in a day, actually. But we also have to factor in work. These men weren't just sitting around writing scripts and editing all day. Breakfast was at 8.30. Dinner was at 5. No meals or snacks in between. 
They found the hardest part was fasting from dinner to breakfast the next morning. The other stuff was constant, too. They still had their assigned jobs, they still attended classes, and they needed to walk the 22 miles per week. Now, because this experiment came about after all of the European famines and whatnot, the meals were supposed to mirror what was commonly available. The men were given things like potatoes, turnips, cabbage, whole wheat bread, not a lot of meat or dairy. There was water, black coffee, gum, and cigarettes available for whenever, really, and at any quantity, so you can just chain drink coffee all day. After a month on the starvation phase, subject Lester Flick wrote the following in his journal. All the men were also told to keep a journal. Wow, my clothes look sloppy. My belt buckle is in the last notch. A decrease of three notches since starvation began. So... He was losing weight, as Dr. Keyes anticipated, but at least his spirits were still up. But that was just after a month. There were still five more months to go. As the starvation phase continued, the men started to experience troubling thoughts. Let's go with that. Franklin Watkins had a nightmare where he walked through the lab and saw a frail old man, still alive, but crumpled up against a wall. Watkins, and again, this was in his dream, picked up the man's skinny arm and started eating his flesh. So, dreams about cannibalism. I'm going to venture a guess here to say that most people don't have dreams about eating other people, even me, and I'm a weirdo. So, this gives us an idea of how hungry these men must have become over the course of the experiment, and how desperate they felt about their access to food. Watkins, you know, Mr. Cannibal Dream, was one of the men who started cheating after a while. In town, he would buy and eat ice cream sundaes. He stole rutabagas from the kitchen and ate them in secret. His weight, therefore, did not drop as anticipated. And when Dr. Keyes confronted him about cheating on his diet, Watkins confessed and told Keyes about his cannibalism dreams. For his part, Keyes wasn't too surprised to hear about the dreams as he knew there was a link between famine and cannibalism. I mean, that's pretty well measured at this point. Watkins promised to stop, but he didn't. He'd shoplift whenever he could. He openly questioned the experiment in front of the others. He even tried to organize a strike with the others who were having a hard time like he was. But the other COs, the conscientious objectors, the guys in the experiment, kind of just started avoiding him as they still felt like this was their noble way of serving the war. So Watkins became more isolated and depressed. Dr. Keyes restricted Watkins from leading the stadium lab as it was clear that he would continue cheating on his diet otherwise. So Watkins, in response, threatened to kill himself. And then he threatened to kill Dr. Keyes. Keyes wasn't scared, just annoyed, actually, because Watkins was now a lost cause, clearly, and all of that data, all of that hard work, was now useless. So Keyes had him transferred to the psych ward, and after a few days of eating normal meals, the psychosis was gone, Watkins was fine, and he left the program. This, by the way, all started within a few weeks of starting the starvation phase. This wasn't month six, this was month one. Halfway through, so around like three, three months, is when Watkins completely broke. And after he was dismissed from the program, Keyes called in the remaining 35 men and told them that they were no longer allowed to go out without a buddy. This included going to town, going to classes. If they were outside the stadium labs, they must be with an accountability buddy. And if that's a new word for you, it's a fun portmanteau of accountability and buddy. The more common problems in the first half of the experiment were not cannibalism dreams. It was physical weakness and fatigue. 
Some of the men found they lacked the strength to do things that were simple before, like even pushing a revolving door at the entrance to a shop. They just couldn't do it. Keyes, with his meticulous measurements, noted a 21% average reduction in strength. And at around the halfway point, so, you know, about three months in, Keyes decided to do the Harvard fitness test again. So, in the control phase, most men displayed the same basic characteristics before collapsing, right? They would start pounding the treadmill more, they would start to sway, they would lose their footing on the ground. But now, the men were essentially just not able to keep up at all. They would just lean forward until they face-planted. One subject, Sam Legg, performed pretty well during the control phase, But halfway through the starvation phase, he went from a solid 142 pounds down to 116 pounds. This fit Keyes' proposed weight loss curve, but still. On his first Harvard fitness test on the starvation phase, so that this three-month mark, Sam only lasted a minute and a half running before he collapsed. Keyes noted a 55% decrease in fitness levels over three months. Also, at this three-month mark, Keyes noticed the men started losing interest in things. First was dating. In fact, interest in women was the first thing to go. And after that, the men were losing interest in the war abroad, something that they had been tracking pretty seriously. I mean, it's the reason they're here, right? This was also the time, by the way, that the war in Europe had officially ended, but not the war with Japan. So there was certainly a lot of news going around. But with their intense starvation, the only thing the men thought about was food. Sam Legg, the one who I was just talking about with the Harvard fitness test, he started to collect cookbooks. He would read the recipes over and over again and stare at the pictures. In line for breakfasts and dinners, he would guard his place jealously. And once, when a serving woman dropped a serving spoon and she went to go get another, you know, small thing, simple mistake, no big deal, Sam lost it. He started slamming his tray down on the counter and cursing. It was clear that prolonged starvation wasn't just causing physical deterioration, but mental and psychological deterioration too. So Keyes noted that ambition, self-discipline, mental alertness, concentration, and comprehension had all dropped. Their morale was dropping too. Keyes didn't want all of the men to end up like Watkins, right? So he organized a morale booster meal where he let his test subjects choose what foods they wanted to eat. Just for this one meal, though. He still measured out the calories. It was a little bit more than they were getting before, but he still measured them out. And the men were given a little bit of agency over the things they were missing the most. And for those of you interested, here are the things that they chose. In no particular order. Grapefruit juice. Bacon. Eggs. Bread with butter and honey. Milk. Fruit punch. Chicken. Stuffing. Potatoes. Gravy. Corn carrot salad, strawberries, biscuits, and we're talking American-style biscuits that you might smother in sausage gravy, okay, not cookies that you eat with tea, celery, peanut butter, minced ham, jelly roll, oranges, and strawberry shortcake. That's, I mean, I can see the roast chicken dinner with fixins, right? But grapefruit juice and celery? Eh, whatever. That meal ended up being 2,366 calories on average for each man, compared to the, the, the 1,570 they were getting before. The men enjoyed their meal. They laughed, they joked, they reminisced, they remembered the reasons why they put themselves through this in the first place. It was a welcome respite. The next day, though, it was back to business. But soon enough, another man had to be removed from the program. Though he did cheat on his diet once, this wasn't the reason, and it was only a little bit of cheating anyway. 
the dude started to urinate blood. <laughs> Keys had to drop him from the program because he probably would have died. So now he was down to 34 test subjects. But to his credit, this guy did stay on to help in the kitchen, finding a way to still support the mission. He really wanted to be able to help. He did start eating normally again, though, and all of his mental and physical ailments went away. Magic. The next big challenge the men faced was edema. Many of the men started to experience weight loss plateaus, meaning it wasn't dropping anymore, it was staying the same, and this was because of edemas, which are areas where your body puffs and swells because of water retention. The men were experiencing on their legs and ankles, but also sometimes they would wake up with swelling on the side of their face that they slept on. Keyes was expecting this. He knew that edemas were linked to starvation and famine, but it did start to mess with his data. Though his subjects were still losing fat and tissue, the water retention meant they weren't losing weight. Nearing the end of the starvation period, Keyes and his fellow scientists were struggling with how to keep up with weight loss while countering the edema. One man had been stuck at a plateau for two weeks, despite eating increasingly less food. It was a brutal decision, as the scientists had gotten to know these men over the last nine months. Suddenly, it wasn't just cutting food from Subject 108's diet, right? But it was taking bread and potatoes away from Lester, who really, really loved bread and potatoes. On the final day of the starvation phase, the men were required to once again perform the Harvard fitness test. This time, though, the men were attached to safety straps, as the scientists knew that they would likely collapse and hurt themselves. Sam Legg, who had experienced a 55% drop in fitness, he only lasted 19 seconds this time. A far cry from the minute and a half from three months ago, or his time during the control period. I think he was the one who lasted the whole five minutes. It was measured to be a 91% total drop in fitness levels. Over six months. The average of the whole group was a 72% drop. It's also worth mentioning that Sam Legg had dropped from an original 142 pounds when the experiment began to just 105.6 pounds. On July 29th, the men entered the final three months of the experiment, the rehabilitation period. They weren't immediately given all 3,200 calories back. It was restricted rehabilitation. In fact, the men were separated into four different groups. Some were given an extra 400 calories, some 800 calories, some 1,200, and finally some were given 1,600. The men didn't know what group they were in either. They were just given their allotted portion of food at breakfast and dinner. Interestingly enough, in the early days of the rehab program, or the rehab period, I should say, the men were still losing weight. This was actually because of the edema. The body was healing from having more calories, and in some cases, protein supplements and vitamins, depending on their, their recovery group, but the edemas went away, so the weight from the fluid retention made them drop in overall pounds, even though they were still technically recovering and healing. But after prolonged starvation, the men were starting to show troubling symptoms. Some experienced hair loss. It grew coarse and thin, and as they brushed it, it fell out in clumps. 19 of the men developed dark patches under the eyes, and their eyes became sunken into the skull. Some of the men's fingernails and lips were turning blue, not unlike cyanosis, which victims of altitude sickness or even cholera can get. Hair follicles were hardening too, giving the skin a weird texture. The scientists called it follicular hyperkeratosis, which is the overproduction of keratin in the hair follicles, which leads to rough bumps on all the hair follicles all over your skin. 
Sam Legg, unfortunately, had all of these symptoms. And though they were in the rehab period, they were all still struggling from a lack of nutrition. And then Sam had an idea. To quit would be cowardly, right? Especially when they didn't join the war effort and this is the way that they were serving their country. But what if he were injured? If Sam could injure himself in a way that made it look accidental, maybe he would be cut from the program without the guilt and shame of quitting. Now, Sam and his accountability buddy often went to visit some friends outside of the campus. Remember, you have to go buddy system, so they would go together. To pass the time at these friends' house, and to not be around the food they always prepared, Sam took to chopping wood for their friends. And he'd head out to a stump while they ate, gathered some logs, and cut them up with an axe. It was performing a service for his friends, it distracted him from the food, and it was a way to pass the time during the outings. Now, before this, Sam had actually tried to crush his hand. He jacked up his car once and pretended to do maintenance on it. And then he pulled the pin on the jack so the car would drop and the tire would crush his hand. Surely, with this accident, he'd be dropped from the program honorably, right? But at the last minute, Sam flinched and he pulled his hand away, and it only crushed the end of one finger. But now, Sam was again fantasizing about being kicked out. Surely a wood-chopping accident would do the trick, right? So he raised the axe into the air, he spread the fingers of his left hand out on the stump, and came down on them as hard as he could with his diminished strength. And he managed to chop off his three middle fingers in one fell swoop, before promptly passing out. For Keyes, this was the moment he realized that perhaps the experiment was beyond a normal way of getting data about starvation. Keyes realized that he was severely torturing these men with a lack of food. And yet, as Keyes visited Sam Legg in the hospital, Sam begged him to stay in the program. So when Keyes asked him why he'd even want to stay, given everything he'd endured up to that point, and even chopping off his own fingers to escape, Legg told him, quote, Doctor, for the rest of my life, people are going to ask me what I did during the war. This experiment is my chance to give an honorable answer to that question. The other subjects understood. To have come so far, to be in the rehabilitation period now, it would be awful to give up and have all of that hard work go to waste. And though Sam had clearly been having a mental break, when it was over, he didn't want to quit or be kicked out. They didn't want to invalidate the results, invalidate all their pain, and invalidate all the starvation they had endured. Sam was released from the hospital after five days and came back to the stadium lab barracks. Nearing the end of the experiment, Keyes started to look closely at his data. He determines that vitamin and protein supplements made no real difference in recovery from starvation. What did make a difference was the amount of extra calories they were eating. Each group recovered at rates proportional to whichever calorie recovery group they were in. So those only getting 400 extra calories a day, not recovering as quickly as those getting an extra 1,600 calories a day, which makes perfect sense to me, but now at least there's tangible data to back it up. After six weeks, the results gave some more insight into recovery. Those in the lowest calorie group, the ones getting an extra 400 calories a day, had only recovered one-tenth of a pound, that's 0.1 pounds, in six weeks. Those in the highest recovery group, essentially eating double their starvation rations, had only gained back an average of six and a half pounds, which is less than one-fifth of what they had lost in the first place. Keyes reasoned that it would take more than 3,000 calories a day to facilitate recovery, 
but he didn't want to share his results until the study was officially complete. But Keyes and his other scientists sat down to chew on what they learned, pun intended. 400, 800, 1200, and 1600 calories a day just wasn't helping with recovery. Keyes bargained that the point of the experiment was not to learn how to starve people, right? It was to learn how to rehabilitate those who were starving. So Keyes and his men decided to up their food rations. The next day, September 9th, the test subjects had another one of those relief morale-building meals, like the one back in the early days of the starvation phase. The men gorged themselves and enjoyed a variety of new foods, not the normal carrot soups and wheat bread and turnip stews and boiled potatoes they were used to. And after this glorious meal, Keyes shared the news that they would all be bumped up an additional 800 calories. So the new groups would be 1,200, 600, 2,000, and 2,400 extra calories. It also meant that a third meal would be added again, so the men no longer had to endure that long stretch, that fasting right between dinner and breakfast the following morning. So not only did the men start to gain weight, but their mental health improved as well. Here's an example. The men, fed up with that buddy system, drafted a manifesto that a majority of them signed and returned to Keys. Far from upset at what others might perceive as insubordination to the program, Keyes and his fellow scientists were actually really happy at this turn of events because the men were returning to life. As Brozhek, one of the other scientists, said to Keyes, quote, Hungry people mindlessly follow orders. You feed them enough, and right away they demand self-government. End quote. But it wasn't a slight on the test subjects, you know, demanding self-government. It was more tangible data that supported Dr. Keyes' ideas about how starvation affects people over a long period of time. Keyes did end up abolishing that buddy system in September 13th, so it worked. Now, nearing the end of the experiment, Keyes and the other scientists repeated some of the tests they took at the beginning and during the starvation phase. One noticeable thing was that the results from the MMPI, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the personality tests that essentially measured mental health, were better than where they started. So that's curious. The men had not regained all of their weight. The average started at 152.7, dropped to 115.6, and only rose to 129.2, which was only a little more than a third of what they had lost. But those in the highest calorie group, you know, the ones getting in the end 2,400 extra calories, were only 10 pounds shy of where they began 48 weeks prior. A feast was planned for their last day together. The final meal, right? Scientists, staff, and test subjects all sat together like a big old Thanksgiving and celebrated this massive accomplishment. The men had set out to prove a point about starvation. Most of these guys had made it to the end. They ate heartily and happily because finally the experiment was officially over. Most of the test subjects left after the experiment ended, but 12 stuck around for more research. But this time it was unrestricted rehabilitation. The men were allowed to consume whatever they wanted in whatever quantity. The scientists just wanted to periodically test them to analyze the long-term effects of the study. And on average, the 12 men who stayed ate around 5,219 calories a day. Even when they stuffed themselves, they said they still felt hungry. Those were, of course, more psychological symptoms and after-effects than physical ones. They also noted that they had an irrational fear of food being taken away from them at a moment's notice, no surprise there, and would go through periods of uncontrolled binge eating. One guy, in one day, consumed 11,500 calories. 
After eight more weeks of unrestricted rehab, they ended the experiment for the rest of them. There would be a few more follow-up appointments in the future, but for all intents and purposes, it was over. Things changed pretty rapidly in the years after the experiment ended. It took Dr. Keyes about five years to get his results fully published, and by then, mass starvation in Europe was not as prevalent. The tables were also slowly turning against human experimentation with things like the Nuremberg trials, right, exposing Nazi cruelty, like Dr. Mengele and his sick experiments. And then there was the Helsinki Declaration, which came out later in 1964, which also sought to protect human participants in medical research. But though human experimentation by Nazis was seen as awful, let's not forget that the U.S. was still doing things like this to its own people. Of the many, many experiments that may shock you, the most well-known is the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. It was a 40-year experiment, which took place between 1932 and 1972, that purposefully infected African-American males with syphilis, then studied the effects that the untreated syphilis had on them, until it eventually killed them. Then they did autopsies. Oh, and these men weren't told what was going to happen to them, by the way. They were not told they were going to be affected with syphilis. They were instead given lies about what the treatments were for. 128 men died, 40 of their wives were infected, and 19 children were born with congenital syphilis. Keyes' report, though it came out later than he planned, did help, though, with studying anorexia. And as Keyes notes in his results, quote, Trying to make meaningful psychological changes with an anorexic patient in this starved state is analogous to trying to address underlying issues with an alcoholic patient who is intoxicated, end quote. Meaning, there's no point trying to study the psychological distress of an anorexic patient while they aren't eating. Food is the key. It's all about food. Dr. Ansel Keyes' final takeaway from this experiment can be summed up in this quote, which comes from a speech he gave in Chicago. Enough food must be supplied to allow tissues destroyed during starvation to be rebuilt. Our experiments have shown that in an adult man, no appreciable rehabilitation can take place on a diet of 2,000 calories a day. The proper level is more like 4,000 calories for some months. The character of the rehabilitation diet is also important, but unless calories are abundant, then extra proteins and minerals are of little value. End quote. So there you go. If you're trying to help somebody who's starving, the only thing that's going to help them is an abundance of food. I guess one other lesson to be learned from this is to eat your food properly or else you'll start dreaming of cannibalism. I mean, at least that's where my brain went after all this. Thanks for joining me for this episode of A Popular History of Unpopular Things. My name is Kelly Beard, and I hope you've enjoyed the story of the Minnesota Starvation Experiment. Thank you for supporting my podcast, and if you haven't already checked out my other episodes, go have a listen. You can also support me and the show on Patreon. Just look up A Popular History of Unpopular Things and join as a cannibal, an explorer, or a historian. Be sure to follow my podcast wherever you listen so that you know when new episodes are dropped. And stay tuned to get a popular history of unpopular things. Uh-huh.